Well, good morning, church, and thank you, Matt, for praying. It's good to see all of you guys, and I've never preached on Mother's Day before, so this is exciting for me, but wanted to say thank you, and uh, just wanted to honor all of our mothers who are here today and attending on Zoom. We are incredibly thankful for you, even uh, as my wife has been uh, such a, oh, I have my mask on. Well, there you go. I don't need to have it on while I'm up here. My apologies. You just get used to it. Anyways, as I was saying, thank you to, to all of our moms, and thank you to uh, my wife in particular. She is an incredible mom, been a mom for uh, eight years now, and I've just learned a ton from her about love and sacrifice and serving others and what it looks like to be someone who invests in the lives of others, someone who contends for the lives of others. She is absolutely incredible in that regard. Uh, even this morning, she, on Mother's Day, watched all of our children this morning, got them ready, did everything with them so that I could take extra time in prayer and reading over my notes and spending time in the Word this morning just in final preparation for uh, talking to you guys. So I'm very thankful for her, and I'm glad that we get to have a day in our culture where we celebrate our moms. But I also know that not all of us experience Mother's Day in the same way. For some of us, Mother's Day may be a hard day or a hard holiday. Perhaps you've lost your mother, or perhaps you are a mother who has lost a child, or maybe you are estranged from your mother or estranged from a child. And whenever this day comes around every year, you're reminded of those feelings of grief and anguish and anxiety. And we just want to acknowledge that and say that is real. And we want to mourn with you this morning, mourning with those who mourn. But we also want to rejoice with those who rejoice. So we also celebrate our mothers this morning. So thank you for, for being here. And I, I want to share a little shameful thing about myself and uh, a way that I'm very different from Matt. If you watch Matt and the way that he cares for his house, he is very proactive in home repair. I mean, he was working on all that brickwork all last summer, just going nuts with it. Not something I would ever do. I'd be like, well, good luck to the next owners of my house worrying about that. He's very proactive. I am very passive and indifferent to a lot of things. Ignorance is bliss. If I don't see a problem, I don't have to worry about it. Sometimes if I think maybe there's a problem, if I don't investigate, well, there's no problem. So, for, for example, right now, the, the floor of our downstairs bathroom has gotten a little wonky. The laminate flooring has started to kind of warp a little bit. I'm not really sure why. I don't know if there's a leak or, or something going on. And truth be told, I'm afraid to go down into the crawl space and look up and see if there's anything going on. Because if I don't do that, then I don't have to worry about it right now. And it's not going to interrupt my life. Because the moment I see that something is wrong, then I'm going to have to take action. And I just quite honestly would prefer to be passive. So don't look to me for homeowning advice. But the truth is, that passive attitude can often relate to not only my walk, but I think you may be able to relate to this, to your walk with the Lord as well. We tend to be just kind of, eh, just going through the motions. I'm just doing what I think I ought to do as a Christian. I kind of show up to church or I'm just indifferent to things that might be going on in my heart and in my community. And even if there's a warning side, if things start to get warped, I ignore those warning signs and I'm just, ah, I'm going to keep going. And we're going to be in the book of Jude today. And Jude has a very relevant and pertinent message to all of us as we potentially experience 
different problems, not only in our life, but also in the life of our community, of our church, as believers walking through life together. So we're going to be in the last third of the book of Jude, but Jude is going to speak to us about our walk with the Lord and what it ought to look like. What are some of the characteristics of that walk with the Lord? To give you a little background, we're not going to go through the whole book this morning, but Jude is the brother of Jesus, and he's writing to believers, and he's writing saying, I want you to contend for the faith. That's why I'm writing to you. But why does he want them to contend for the faith? He's saying, look, there are some false believers who've kind of worked their way into your group, into your church, and I want you to contend for the faith. I want your life to look different from theirs. And his whole, well not his whole, but the majority of his letter is this uh, big section that's full of metaphors and illustrations of what's ultimately going to happen to these people. You can understand who these people are, you can recognize them by the way that they live. They're not true believers, they pervert grace, they lead immoral lives, they deny Jesus, they grumble, they're malcontents, they follow their own sinful desires, they're scoffers. Ultimately they're indifferent to the truth and to the people around them. And Jude is saying, don't be indifferent to them, and don't be indifferent to the issues that they're raising. And he reminds them over and over again in this letter that these people are going to face judgment. That something is going to happen. And he's saying, don't follow them. Don't be shipwrecked by them. But then at the very end of his letter, in verse 17, which is where we're going to pick it up, he shifts his attention onto the life of the believer. He said, look, this is the life of this false believer, so what does the life of the true believer look like? How do you contend for the faith? How do you not be passive or indifferent to the house that you're building? So that's where we are going to dive in today. And let me pray really quick. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We pray that through your spirit, you would soften our hearts, give us ears to hear, and help us to understand, help us to seek you. May what I say today show us your glory. May what I say today be clear. Help us to know you. May we know that we are kept by you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's dive in together, starting in verse 17. But you... Must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. So we're going to stop there for a second. Jude is now setting up a contrast. He's going to start describing these ungodly people. And then in a minute we'll see him move into describing the godly people, the true believers. But he he starts with this. He says, you must remember. And then he describes who these people are that the apostles predicted. So what are they like? Well, ultimately, they are inward focused. They're inward focused. They're scoffers. Scoffers look at the truth and they're kind of like, eh, no thanks. I'm not interested. I don't want that. They ridicule it and they say, that is not for me. Why would I ever want to follow that? He's saying there are people amongst you who are scoffers. They follow their own ungodly passions. They're all about what they want. They don't care to submit to a truth outside of themselves. They scoff at it and they follow their own desires, being inward focused. 
they also cause divisions. So not only are they looking to themselves, they fail to look to others. They don't extend love to them. They want to divide God's people. So they create unnecessary divisions in the church. They don't have a love for their brothers. Again, they're inward focus. And lastly, they're devoid of the Spirit. So ultimately, they don't have God. They don't know who He is. They just look to themselves. They just look to themselves. So in these three verses, or excuse me, three sentences and three verses that we have here, we see that there will be false brothers who act opposite of true brothers. They are real and we need not be surprised. They are real and we need not be surprised when they begin to act opposite of true brothers. And we know this is true. Uh, Rox and I are, are doing some premarital counseling with uh, uh, some friends of ours. And this past week, we were meeting with them, and we've been reading through Dave Harvey's When Sinners Say I Do. And in his book, he shares the story of a pastor who courted and married a wife, a woman, and on their honeymoon, he said to her, I don't love you. I only married you so that I could advance my pastoral prospects. He knew that a married pastor would be able to have a bigger and better church and people would look at him with more respect and that's why he married her. He told that to her on the honeymoon and then proceeded to have multiple affairs over the course of their marriage. Shipwrecked his life and his family. And we were working with this couple and they were disgusted by that story. And Probably you too, as you heard me share it, you're just sickened by it. To think that somebody that had been charged with caring for God's people would would say, nah, I'm just going to be in it for myself. And we're shocked and we're disgusted and we say, that is not right. But we know that these things happen. That it was promised to us that it would happen. Jude says, look, the disciples, the apostles, they said this was coming and it will come. Don't be shocked. You might sometimes be shocked by the who, but we're not shocked that it actually happens. False brothers are here, but you'll see them and know them by their fruit. They are here. So don't be surprised. But then what do we do? What are we supposed to do in light of these false brothers, what is our life supposed to be like? How is it contrasted with those false brothers over there? What are we to do? So Jude gives us two sets of commands. We're going to spend the bulk of our time looking at those today. Two sets of commands. One that deal with kind of your own heart and your own life, your own inward look, but then also one that's looking outward as well. So let's keep going together, starting in verse 20. But you, beloved, but you, beloved, so again, a contrast, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. There's one main command here, one main command. Keep yourselves in the love of God. In the midst of all the chaos around them, in the midst of these false brothers who have infiltrated the church, Jude says to them, keep 
yourselves in the love of God. It's not a passive walk with Christ. It's not just I sit back and I'm just kind of living the Christian life. I'm doing the bare minimum Christianity. I'm being a couch potato. I'm indifferent. I don't just pursue what the but I pursue my own things. It's not that. He's saying this is an active, a robust of faith where I am actively keeping myself in the love of God, where I say the love of God is where I want to be, and so this is where I am going to walk. And that's the command that Jude gives to these believers. Now, what this doesn't mean, I don't want you to hear me saying this. He's not saying that we earn our way in God's love or somehow we continue to earn his love after we are with him. It's not about earning God's love or somehow that we, by what we do, we keep ourselves in God's grace and his favorable disposition toward us. He's not saying that or that God is some kind of strict teacher and we have to stay on the straight and narrow and if we start to wander, then he just kicks us off the bus or kicks us out of the classroom. It's not that. Instead, Jude is contrasting the life of the believer with the false believer. The believer continues onward and says, that's where I want to go, while the false believer says, I'm kind of content where I am. I want to pursue my own ungodly passions in this world. And Jude says, no, don't let that be true of you. There is an emphasis on obedience here. But obedience does not make you a believer. It reveals that you are a believer. Obedience doesn't make you a believer. It reveals that you are a believer. That God has changed your heart and that you want to continue moving toward him. We're going to unpack that a little bit more later. But you'll also see in these verses here, They have that one main command, keep yourself. But then there's three other statements, kind of these subordinate clauses that kind of support it and describe kind of the how or the what this looks like. Three of those statements. The first one is building yourself up in the holy faith. Building yourself up in the holy faith. Now that's contrasted with the scoffers and their ungodly passions. They're kind of doing whatever the heck they want. Scoffers are like, eh, no thanks. But the builder, he says, no, I'm going to pursue this. That looks like studying, learning, clinging to doctrine, seeking to understand, seeking to grow, looking for counsel, accepting rebuke, looking to say, this is the faith and I'm clinging to it and I want it to be bigger and better in my heart. It's a mind thing and a heart thing. It's not just growing in knowledge, but being impacted. And it's the holy faith. There is a moral component to this. Jude is very concerned in his book about immorality. And here we get that the believer is to pursue their holy faith. So as we grow, our lives should begin to look more and more pure. It doesn't mean as soon as we become a Christian that all of a sudden all of the sin in my life, all the filth is just gone in the sense that I don't see it or experience it or know about it anymore. But over time, as I build myself up, I become more and more holy in the here and now, even though I stand completely and perfectly holy due to the work of Christ before God in heaven. The Christian life is one of growth and building. Uh, There's a a fun documentary on Netflix that I encourage you actually to go watch. It's fantastic. 
uh, over the past, uh, I don't know, a couple months or a couple years, I have a, I've developed a fascination with rock climbing. Not that I climb, but I enjoy learning about it. So perhaps you've watched Free Soul. Yeah, I, climbing, I, I can't do it. I went to the climbing gym with a buddy the other day, and it was, it was really hard. Uh, but uh, I, enjoy, I enjoy learning about it and watching it. It's fascinating. You may have watched Free Solo. Uh, that's uh, where the guy climbs up El Cap, uh, El Capitan with nothing, uh, just no ropes, no harnesses, no anything. I think there's actually a better documentary about climbing called The Dawn Wall on Netflix. And The Dawn Wall is about two guys named uh, Tommy Codwell and Kevin Jorgensen. They are two professional climbers. And The Dawn Wall is the same mountain uh, that uh, was climbed in Free Solo, but The Dawn Wall is a, a different face of it that up until 2015, when these two guys climbed it, had never been climbed uh, free climb before. Now, free climb is not the same as free solo. Free solo is, you know, no ropes, no nothing. Free climb, you do have ropes and, and that kind of thing. You can't actually fall off the face of the mountain and die, but you, uh, but you don't have any help. You don't have any ladders or anything like that, so it's still incredibly hard. And the Dawn Wall had never been traver- uh, climbed before. And the Dawn Wall, the, the thing that's unique about it is there's very little handholds. Incredibly hard climb, hence hadn't been done, hadn't been done. And Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgensen set out to do it. At one point in the climb, I can't remember how high up it is, but they got to a point and they have to climb sideways. And during this sideways climb, there is practically nothing to grab a hold of. You have to be a professional to be able to do it. And even then, you would only be able to do it maybe one out of every five or so times if you were absolutely incredible. So anyways, Tommy and um, Kevin are climbing this. Tommy gets across this path, and then Kevin starts to go. Kevin can't do it. He's stuck. He falls off again and again and again. Every time you fall off, you have to kind of go back to the part uh, that you were on, or kind of your last starting point where you were clipped in. Uh, There's all sorts of rock climbing stuff that, you know, I don't really understand, but hey, that's part of it. Uh, So you... um, you get to start over. And I mean, just for days, he was trying to traverse this horizontal section. And you'd watch him. Like, he's, I mean, he's hanging on like this. Not, not like this. It's like, like this on the side of a mountain. And for days, he's trying to just get across this one section. And he'd reach out. Oh, and he'd fall. And he'd have to do it again and again. He got to the point where he had to take a couple days off and rest and recover. Well, They make it to the top, so spoiler alert, he does actually get across that eventually. But I was thinking about that and reminded that in the Christian life, even if you continually fall off and you're at a part that you cannot traverse, the Christian keeps going. They keep trying it again and again, and even if you feel like there is nothing to hold on to, Over time, eventually, you make it. And you're able to keep climbing up the mountain. We build ourselves up in the holy faith. That was the first subordinate clause. So keep going. Secondly, praying in the Spirit. The true believer is praying in the Spirit. Now this is contrasted with the false believer who was devoid of the Spirit. The true believer prays in the Spirit. And that's not necessarily some mystical, like, oh, I'm overwhelmed by the Spirit and it's really magical and weird type thing. 
But instead, it's who are you submitted to in your prayer? Are you praying for the things the Lord desires? Are you seeking to pray what God wants and say, Spirit, lead me in this? Or are you praying for what I want? I'm devoid of the Spirit, and so I'm just looking at my own things, and I'm like, oh, God, you know, hey, uh, if you could make all these things great for me. But instead, it's, Lord, what do you want? What What do the people around me need? What do you want to see different happen in my life and in theirs? We pray in the Spirit. So what are you praying for? What are you praying for? Do you pray for the Lord's desires? Or are your prayers marked by just constant me, 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 me? The third clause that we see is that the true believer is waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. They're waiting for mercy. Our faith is a future-oriented faith. We see the mercy that God is going to bring us in the distance. His ultimate redemption when he comes and makes all things new. And we wait for that. And the things around us fade away because they aren't nearly as important. We see where we're going. We see the destination. And we look at this other stuff and we're like, that can't capture my attention. So I can be patient and wait for that that's off in the distance because it's better. I wait for the mercy that is coming to me. The mercy of God. His love coming to me. This is contrasted again with the worldly person. The false believers. Who sees no need for mercy. Who does not wait patiently but lives for the here and now. The true believer is waiting for mercy. And a good way to kind of take a self-assessment for yourself is to ask, what upsets me? What kind of gets me like, ah, I don't really like that. The more and more you're upset by the small things in this life and the things that have no eternal value or significance, the less you are looking to the mercy that is coming. So where do you look? Jude says, set your eyes on our future hope, on that mercy that's coming, and not on the world, and wait, and wait. Okay, so when we take all of this together, and Jude is saying, keep yourself in the love of God. And you keep yourself, what does it look like? It's by growing, praying, waiting. The Christian keeps himself through those things. And his life is described by those things. But then Jude is going to shift our attention away from kind of what is happening in our life and what's going on. And he starts making us look, okay, what's going on around me? What's happening in those people's lives? If there are false brothers who are kind of stirring up trouble and leading people astray, are my eyes looking to those people? Am I looking to have an impact among them? Am I looking to keep others? So I'm keeping myself. Am I keeping others? Let's read. Starting in verse 22. And have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear. 
hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Christians keep others. This whole section contrasts again with the person, the false believer, who causes division, who seeks to rip the church apart. True believers go in mercy to those who are struggling. They go and they snatch them out of the fire. They have mercy on those who maybe we wouldn't want to have mercy on. We're looking to love. As we grow, our attention then looks to love others. And so these three commands, have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them from the fire, and then have mercy on others, but with fear. So let's look at those just briefly. And for all three of these, in honor of Mother's Day, we'll show how mothers actually, I think, are a great example of this. If you want to understand these things, look at how a mother cares for her children. Look at how a mother cares for her children. So the first one, have mercy on those who doubt. So there's these false believers in the church stirring up discord and it causes doubt. Do I have a posture towards those who are struggling and I say, I want to enter in with you into your life and say, hey, what's going on? How can I be a part of your life? How can I address your concerns? But more importantly, how do I show you mercy and not put myself up on a ledge or, or on a podium and say, huh, you know, how, you know, I can't believe that you would ever doubt or struggle with that. No, have mercy on them. Remember, we wait for mercy. We wait for that mercy that's in the distance. We know that it's been shown to us. And so we're able to extend it to others as we wait for its fulfillment. We have mercy on those who doubt. And think of a mother who observes her child struggling with a task, who's getting frustrated and doesn't understand. What does the mother do? She doesn't say just, ah, you know, good luck, you know, hey, too bad for you. No, a good and loving mother comes to her child. And maybe she doesn't do the task for them, but she sits with the child. She works with the child. She helps the child. She has mercy on the child, not because the child deserves the help, but because she has mercy on the child and moves towards him. The second one, snatching others from the fire. This brings up a theme in Jude that is hard. And that is hell is real. Hell is real. And Jude is asking us, do you care to snatch people from the fire? Do you see that there is indeed a fire, that judgment awaits, that evil deserves to be punished, but that also God extends mercy to those who repent and have faith in Christ. If you're here today and you don't know what this faith in Christ means or what we're talking about when we say God is merciful, you see, we are guilty of an infinite debt against the Lord because we have done infinite wrong. When we do sin, when we commit things, or when we have attitudes and postures that are wrong and evil and wicked, we're saying to the Lord, I don't want you to be my king. No thanks. And we deserve hell because of that. Because he is infinitely glorious and perfect and majestic and amazing and awesome and powerful. And we say to him, no thanks. But God in his mercy says, I don't want you to suffer eternity apart from you. I don't want you to be apart from my presence. 
So he sent Jesus to die for us, paying the price that we owed on the cross. And he says, look, this this covers what you have done. All you have to do is trust in my son. Trust that his payment is what it claims to be. That he, he is who he claims to be. Place your faith in that and turn away from what you were doing, from where you were going, and follow me. He says, if you do that, you will live. You will be snatched from the fire. And here in Jude, Jude is saying to all of us, do you recognize that this is a reality? For those of us who have been snatched from the fire, at one point someone snatched us. Do we have it in our eyes to say, I want to snatch others. I'm looking to see who is headed to the fire. And I go and I seek to snatch them away. Think again of a mother who is with her child and her child falls in the fire. What kind of a mother says, yeah, let's see if you can get out. No, no, the mother rushes in and snatches the child from the fire because she doesn't want the child to burn. In the same way, do we snatch others from the child, or from the child, from the fire? Just a brief moment of application along these lines of thoughts. I want you to think right now, who is one person, just one person, that this week you can talk with about who Jesus is? Just even starting a conversation about spiritual things or their background. One person that needs to be snatched from the fire. And I encourage you, before we leave here today, before you walk out those doors, to maybe shoot that person a text and say, hey, I want to spend some time with you this week. Can we get together? I just want to hear more about your life. Start a conversation with them. Snatch people from the fire. Third one, have mercy with fear. So how is this different from the first one, of have mercy on those who doubt? Well, in this circumstance, Jude is talking about those who are leading immoral and profane lives and who are slipping away, and he's saying, look, show mercy with fear. Understand that sin is not something you want to mess with. And he's saying you still have mercy on them. You still want to walk with them. You still extend the gospel to them. You still seek to restore them. But you don't play with their sin. You don't identify with it. You don't get near it and say, yeah, how close can, to your sin can I get? And yeah, I love you that much. No, he's saying love them, but be afraid for yourself. I think of Rox, our, uh, when she would care for our middle child, Eden. When Eden was a baby, excuse me if this, is, if this is a little graphic, but Eden would go days without pooping. And she would get to a point where she'd just have massive blowouts every time. And Rox got really good at timing this. She would kind of know, you know, it's been like, you know, six days, so here it comes. I'm going to be ready. I've got extra clothes and everything with me. And Rox, when this would happen, in love, she doesn't just say, looking, looking at baby Eden and say, yeah, clean yourself up. And she doesn't look at Eden and start to clean her up and then revel in the defilement and being soiled and be like, hmm, let me handle all these soiled clothes. I'm so excited about this. No, with care, she cleans up our daughter, but also she's careful not to let it get on her. In the same way, we have mercy on others, but with fear. But with fear. So we have these two things. We keep ourselves, and we keep others. 
you may be feeling right now, and I hope you actually are, the sense of, that's a lot. What the heck am I supposed to do? I'm exhausted just thinking about all these things. Or maybe you feel defeated. Maybe you've gotten to a point and you're like, that is impossible. I keep trying to grow, but I keep falling off the wall. I keep trying to live a holy life and I'm struggling. Mark, I feel burdened that you've just told me to keep myself in the love of God. How can a God of grace say to me, keep yourself in my love? I hope you're feeling that tension. Because ultimately we can't. You cannot just keep yourself in God's love. You cannot just snatch others out of the fire. You can't even control their heart. You can't control whether or not they're actually going to run out of the fire with you. Yet we're commanded to do it. And we're commanded to keep ourselves in God's love. Praise be to God, there is an answer. And Jude does not end his letter here. After these commands we've just read, he moves into a portion of praise, a doxology, which is kind of the formal ending of a letter. But he chooses his words very carefully. Very, very carefully. Nothing in Jude is just made in passing or an accident. He is very precise with his words. Very impressive for a carpenter's son, I might add. Let's read verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. You see that? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Praise be to God that this is here because it is beautiful and it is glorious. God keeps his children. God keeps his children. We keep ourselves, we keep others, yet God keeps his children. This idea of keeping happens four times in the book of Jude. We have it in the very beginning, we didn't read this, but he actually starts the book by saying, to those who are called, who are kept by Jesus Christ. Later on, we see that God is keeping demonic angels who have rebelled against him and done terrible things, he's keeping them in chains. Permanent, eternal chains waiting for the last judgment. It's a strong keeping. And then we get to keep yourself. And then finally, God is able to keep you. The same keeping that God does with those angels, keeping them under lock and key, He keeps His people. He keeps His people. He does not let go. And his keeping is not like when that container ship in the Suez Canal, you know, kind of got stuck. And it's like, well, I guess guess I'm kept here. We're we're just going to be here. No, it's not like that. It's a willful, a joyful keeping saying, this is mine. God's keeping, the strength of it makes it the, the chain on the anchor of an aircraft carrier, which is a literal village in the sea. It's huge. Imagine the size of the chain and the strength it must have to keep that thing anchored. God's keeping us makes that look like Play-Doh. It is firm, it is sure, and it is secure. 
Now, how the heck does this work? <laughs> how can God keep us, yet at the same time he commands us to keep ourselves? Practically, how does this work itself out? Well, two ideas. Two ideas that we'll unpack to kind of talk about this. The first one, we're hopeless and helpless apart from Christ. We want to establish that as our firm foundation. Hopeless and helpless apart from Christ. Titus 3 verses 4 and 5 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Remember that mercy that we're waiting for God to show us. But according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. His mercy has come to us. So we're hopeless and helpless apart from Christ. That is the foundation, the thing we have to start with. But then secondly, we do still strive and toil, but, but it's not us who ultimately does the work. Let's look at this. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. And I'm sorry we don't have it on the screen. You'll just have to listen well. It says, Therefore, my beloved, Paul speaking, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That goes with keep yourself. But then get this. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. For it is God who works in you. Work out your own salvation, but it is God who works in you. Keep yourself even though you are kept by God. Earlier in Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1 Verses 28 to 29, Paul again says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So he's saying, this is our ministry. This is what I'm doing. For this I toil, presenting everyone mature in Christ. He's toiling, struggling. So it's like this idea of sweating and hard labor, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Struggling with his energy that he powerfully works within me. See, our sanctification, that's our growth, becoming more and more like Jesus, and even our will to grow is the fruit of the Spirit's work in us. We didn't bring anything to the table in our salvation. And it's the same with our growth But God, in his mercy, gives us the strength and power to continue walking with him. And so Jude's message is not a burdensome one. It's not onerous. Instead, it's a message of hope. It's saying, keep yourself as God keeps you. See God's mercy for you, and then keep going. Keep going. Look to him and his love, because he is good. And then we can keep going, because it is him who keeps us. When we feel like we can't go any further and we're exhausted, we say, Lord, I've got nothing left. We look to him and we say, but your strength is within me. Lord, will you help me to go? And we go. It is his energy when false brothers are here in the church and they tempt people to fall away. We keep going. We cling to what is true and we praise God for his gift of giving that to us. And we keep going. And that should cause us to break out in praise when we see this. In the same way that as Jude is speaking to his audience, 
and saying, keep yourselves and keep others. And then he praises God because he's like, oh yes, it is God who keeps. It is God who keeps. Keeping yourself in the love of God reveals that you are kept. Reveals that God is working in us. We can continue to forge ahead because Christ knows his sheep. His sheep hear his voice and they follow him. When you picture a shepherd leading sheep down a path and he's calling to them and he's telling them where to go. The sheep hear and they walk towards the shepherd. They walk towards the shepherd. Who is keeping the sheep there? I mean, yeah, the sheep are walking. They're carrying themselves. But at the same time, it's the shepherd saying, here I am. And they respond. And they go. And he offers gentle corrections that keep them on the path. Or maybe even harsh corrections to keep them on the path, depending on how wayward they're trying to be. But his sheep hear his voice. So I have this phrase that I think sums up all of this. And it's the title of today's sermon. Keep as you are kept. Keep as you are kept. There's some practical ways you can think about this, that when you actually experience this in your life, when you're walking through, when you encounter hardship, when you see the scoffers, when you need to contend for the faith. It's kind of a four-step process. The first is you confess that, hey, let's talk, maybe it's growing. You don't want to grow. You don't want to build yourself up in the holy faith. First confess. Be like, Lord, I don't want to. This is what I'm struggling with. I'm just being honest, Lord. I'm, I have mercy on me. I need help. So confess. Second one, ask. Lord, I do need help. Will you help me? Then thirdly, by faith, by faith, you move forward. So that means with a lot of toil and labor and struggle, you take the next step in your walk trusting that it is God who is working in you and giving you that energy. It's not something you're crafting on your own. And then fourthly, you look back and you worship. And you don't say, ha, I did such a great job. Yay me, I'm an amazing Christian. Look at how I just got across this wall. No, you look back and you say, thanks be to God for the presence of his spirit in my life that he enabled me to get where I am. So when you don't feel like being built up, whether it's learning, discovering, spending time with the Lord, becoming more and more grounded, becoming more and more holy, you ask the Lord for strength and move forward and knowing God will keep you. Let's say you don't feel like waiting for God's mercy. You're distracted by the things around you. Lord, help me to see your mercy in the future. And then maybe read something that puts your eyes on Christ and helps you see eternal things. And say, Lord, thanks be to God that you gave me the strength to do that. When you don't feel like snatching someone out of the fire, it'll be awkward. Maybe you're lazy. Maybe you've never done it before. Say, Lord, in your mercy, give me the strength. And by faith, you go and you have that conversation. And it may be weird, it may be hard, it may sound terrible. Or it may be amazing. But either way, you look back and you say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Because praise be to God, he keeps us in his love. He doesn't keep us because we've kept ourselves, but we keep ourselves because he has kept us. 
So don't be surprised, in summary, when evil and false brothers, people who don't keep themselves, infiltrate the visible church. They're pursuing their own desires. Keep marching on, keeping yourself in the love of God. And then as you do that, seek to keep others as well. Keep others in his love. But remember, through all of that, you are being kept. And that is how we move forward. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we praise you that you keep us in your love. We thank you that you are gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. We thank you that it is an act of mercy to us that you keep us because we know that if we were not kept by you, that we would just run off the path. But you keep us. So Lord, I pray that in your strength, that we would continue to press onward as a church, keeping ourselves and each other and those who don't know you, that we would reach out and snatch them from the fire and that we would together move towards you, waiting for the mercy to be revealed, for our eternal hope, for the revelation from heaven to come. Father, I pray that we would be that type of people. Father, may we delight And take joy in the fact that we are kept by you. Kept by you. And because of that, we can keep ourselves in your love as we walk with you moment by moment and day by day. We praise you for this. And I pray all this in Jesus' name.